Wednesday Live, I'm Graham Lynch. Welcome to the show, our last for 2021. Today we'll be talking to an Aussie expat executive made good, Ricky Croker, who works for Nokia in America, heading up their customer experience operations for North and South America. Um, Looking forward to that chat. But first up, Rowan Pearce. The award-winning executive editor of Comms Day. Welcome to the show, Rowan. Thanks, Graham. I think. <laughs> now, to put a bit of context on that, Rowan this week was awarded the IT Journalism Technology News Journalist Award, Journalist of the Year, against a cricket team of competitors worth about 11 in the field. From all sorts of illustrious publications. So congratulations, Rowan. Well done. Thank you. I'm blushing. <laughs> okay. Now, talking of your fantastic journalism, let's um, kick off with a discussion about what NBN is up to, and particularly in these ACCC uh, workshops that are being conducted right now with RSPs um, regarding the uh, special access undertaking that, that NBN wants to lodge a variation on uh, next year. And uh, apparently some very interesting developments on what they want to do with prices. Yeah, it was very interesting. As you said, they're working on kind of like uh, thrashing out a new SAU. Um, so it's working groups that bring together the ACCC and other stakeholders, so NBN, RSPs, obviously, um, ACAN as well, I believe. Um, so they don't really, they're closed-door meetings, but the ACCC does produce these summaries of what's going on to give you kind of indication of thing, what things are um, where things are headed. So the the latest round was quite interesting. Um, as you said, like NBN kind of presented what was a, a potential pricing model that could be included in the new SAU. And it'd be quite significant changes. So one would be actually like um, eliminating CVC from a number of speed tiers. While, so sort of keeping it for the lower tiers, um, but then some of the higher end tiers eliminating it and also kind of expanding the number of CVC free products over time. So obviously that would be a pretty dramatic shift. I think another one that kind of jumped out to me was also the kind of change towards um, where CVC is retained. It would be charged based on utilization rather than an RSP kind of provisioning a certain amount of CVC ahead of time. Um, so it was kind of described as an indicative price construct model, uh, sorry, construct proposal so it sounds like it's pretty early stage and i imagine there's going to be a whole lot more wrangling particularly as the um you know as the ACCC and mbn get really stuck into the um sau process itself well it seems like we're getting there anyway um after after a long dragged out process now moving on um this week the australian mobile telecommunications uh, association which is the lobby for mobile carriers and vendors in australia um, put put out a submission um, with a big amber claim for lots and lots of spectrum over the next few years. And the people who they want to take that spectrum off, the free TV lobby, weren't too happy about it. Tell us about it. Yeah, so quite interesting. Um, yeah, Dylan, Dylan had the original coverage of the um, AMTA paper, which is saying, you know, we, we feel like government should try and free up 8 gigahertz for mobile services by 2030. And that would actually be spread across like low band, mid band and MM wave. Um, and I guess like, you know, putting forward these, uh, like some accompanying research saying that, you know, these are the spectrum needs for telcos, particularly across like Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. Um, and uh, I guess like... Uh, their, their argument was that um, you know the government should essentially take some of this spectrum away from TV broadcasters and also the Wi-Fi industry. I mean, I guess 
particularly kind of around the five, six gigahertz in the case of Wi-Fi. Um, so I, I, um, I followed this up with Free TV CEO Bridget Fair, who obviously had a, a slightly different take on the issue. Um, and I guess her basic argument was you can't really... So Amped is saying on one hand, you know, TV's not embracing, you know, kind of spectral efficient technologies and that kind of thing. Uh, Bridget Fair's response is like, you can't really treat TV like the mobile industry because you don't have like the service providers, like the broadcasters actually supplying TVs to the kind of end consumer. So, you know, that um, the process of technological change is by its nature a bit slower. Um, I guess the, the other thing, though, is that she did indicate that, um, you know, the TV sector is open to a kind of second digital dividend. It's just not at the kind of rate that the government has previously suggested in the Green Paper media reform. Um, uh, the media reform Green Paper, I should say, that the government issued, they were kind of hinting at like maybe a mid-decade kind of timeline for freeing, age more, freeing up more UHF um, spectrum. But the Bridge Affair and the kind of Free TV Australia are basically saying this is like far too ambitious in terms of freeing up that spectrum. Okay, well, that's terrific, Rowan. Thank you very much for that sum up and thank you very much for joining us on an almost weekly basis through 2021. Looking forward to doing it again next year. We've survived 2021. Who would have thought? <laughs> Cheers, Graham. continue our look at the week that was with Simon Ducks, the chief editor of Comms Day. Welcome, Simon. Hi there, Graham. Okay, first up, um, we've had quite a lot of announcements about telcos embracing renewable energy in the news recently, and the NBN were the latest, saying that they're going full hill on it. But that apparently has left a odd man out, or odd person out. Optus, who Greenpeace uh, targeted this week, saying that they're a bit of a laggard on, on uh, embracing renewable energy. Tell us all about it, Simon. Yes, it was a, a, quite a funny one, actually, because uh, Greenpeace were commending some of the action that we've seen in the telecom sector to address uh, decarbonising Australia's energy-intensive telco sector, as they uh, called it. But then they uh, singled out Optus on renewables. Um, uh, the... Uh, Greenpeace Australia, Lindsay Suter, apparently said that telcos are now using around 4% of Australia's electricity, equivalent to 580,000 homes or more than all homes in Adelaide. So obviously a fair chunk. And uh, they were literally responding to MBN uh, making and joining frontrunners Telstra and TPG on their shift to renewables and uh, then actually came out and said, now we need Optus, which seems to be perpetually stuck on dial-up to join the party. So uh, naturally, we went and had a quick chat with Optus about that. And uh, the VP of Regulatory and Public Affairs, Andrew Sheridan, uh, told us that essentially Optus was uh, choosing a different path, uh, quote unquote. But what they're looking at is they are looking at decarbonisation and uh, reducing the amount of energy that they're going to consume. But they haven't actually uh, gone for this 100% renewable electricity commitment uh, as per the other telcos. And we think they're a little bit hamstrung essentially by, uh, if you look at their owners, Singtel, who is owned by Temasek, who is then owned by the Singapore government, you can't really have a situation where Optus is not uh, being aligned with what the Singapore government's doing. And of course, the Singapore government and a lot of uh, jurisdictions in Southeast Asia are still very reliant on gas 
and haven't actually set uh, big targets themselves. And uh, because of that, uh, very, very difficult uh, for Optus to actually manoeuvre. But uh, Andrew has assured us that they will be doing some initiatives that we'll hear about in the new year. Um, I probably shouldn't be sceptical about these things, but um, yeah, there's a big difference between a press release and a result, and the results have yet to manifest. Anyway, moving on. Um, Equinix had some interesting things to say and do this week. Um, interesting things to say about HyperCloud, and they did something interesting in Perth. That's right, uh, Graham. It was an end-of-year catch-up uh, with the head of Australia, Guy Danskin, and uh, we had a bit of a chat about uh, AWS's recent US East One outage, which essentially lasted most of the day and took off a great swathe of uh, the public cloud, uh, affecting all sorts of businesses globally. And uh, essentially, uh, the discussion about that is around whether telcos, who uh, have always pr- prided themselves on 5.9's reliability and have SLA that have to actually match some of these can rely on putting a lot of their uh, uh, work into the cloud, uh, the public cloud. And of course, uh, when you're looking at core connectivity, uh, that's going to be a little bit tricky. And so Guy was uh, suggesting that, you know, this is just one example of why a lot of Equinix's customers, for example, are really going towards hybrid cloud. And, uh, you know, if you mix it up like that, you can put your critical traffic and uh, applications, have them on dedicated services, uh, servers, I should say, uh, like uh, bare metal servers. And uh, then you can actually put the less important traffic into the public cloud and take that mix and that's what they're actually seeing is driving a lot more of uh, enterprise and telco decisions on what they're going to do with cloud and he was speaking to me just uh, recently after Equinix had launched their PE3 uh, data center now uh, this one is quite interesting it's in Perth and uh, it's giving them uh, the first facility that Equinix has had where they actually uh, got cable uh, Bevan Slattery's Oman Uh, Perth cable, uh, which will terminate in uh, both uh, Equinix facilities at each end, uh, which is uh, an interesting move. And uh, I was chatting uh, to Guy about uh, when you look at WA, uh, you've got uh, some interesting moves from um, NextDC tying themselves very closely with Vocus uh, up in Darwin. They've got potential opportunities to spread that out uh, as Vocus builds out across the northwest shelf. And uh, I uh, suggested to Guy, uh, what about moving uh, into edge uh, facilities? Now, if you think that um, PE3 is uh, Equinix's 18th uh, IBX data center, they have a pretty big uh, footprint. And uh, he he essentially said that they're not looking at going into uh, edge just yet uh, because of the fact when you look at what they're trying to do with their footprint globally, they are looking at 80% of the world's population should be within 10 milliseconds of latency. And that's how they actually plan out to do that. And currently, this is working for them, essentially. Now, Equinix is also going to be going after the mining sector in WA. Uh, they've got a very good partnership with Telstra. And uh, so we'll see some activity on the back of that. And uh, the final thing we got around to was talking about uh, Equinix's new bare metal uh, service, which uh, they're bringing into Melbourne in 2022. Sydney, as we know, is already online. 
And uh, of course, uh, a lot of the chip manufacturers are pretty excited by that uh, because it gives them a big opportunity uh, and a new channel uh, to reach a lot of enterprise customers. And so rounding up uh, by 2022, Equinix is going to have two metal regions as well as Equinix Fabric in four markets, Canberra, Perth, Sydney and Melbourne. So uh, another big year coming ahead for Equinix. Okay, well, that's terrific, Simon. And uh, just want to thank you for your contributions to Comms Day Live through 2021. Looking forward to resuming in 2022. It's been a big year. Well, moving on, we're talking to a very special guest, an Australian who's been overseas for about a quarter of a century and is over in Northern California. Ricky Corker, the Chief Customer Experience Officer for Nokia. Welcome to the show, Ricky. Hey, Graham. Great to be back. And in fact, I'm sitting here in Melbourne. So I wanted wanted to start off with that introduction. Um, You've had a very interesting personal journey, Um, an Australian telecom executive who's who works at a global level, and I understand you've been based in North America for over a decade. T- tell me a, a bit about that journey and, and um, where you've been and some of those experiences that you've had along the way. Yeah, it's certainly been a journey, and, and, and for, a, for a young former Telstra engineer, it, it's uh, it's only been a, a long journey. So, uh, yeah, so I obviously started my career here in Australia with, with Telstra and then uh, went through a number of journeys. I, I spent several years in Europe. Uh, working um, with some of our global customers like the Vodafone Group, British Telecom. Uh, and then uh, roughly 11 years ago, uh, I moved to, uh, sorry, I spent uh, eight years in, in Asia. Uh, that was a great experience, I think, working in uh, you know, very culturally diverse regions, quite challenging where you have very advanced operators. You have a number of operators who at that time were emerging and, and building their first network. So that was a quite unique experience. And then for the last 11 years, as you mentioned, I've been based out of North America. I'm responsible for, for both the North America business and for a period also the Latin America business. And of course, you know, that you know, is considered one of the more advanced uh, global markets. So of course, it's been an interesting experience working not just with the, the big mobile customers there, but also working with the cable operators, the MSOs, uh, the enterprise customers there as well. So uh, certainly been an interesting journey and you know, um, great to also see a few other fellow Aussies traveling around the world. It's, it seems that, that we do export well. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so you have a unique perspective, um, obviously, with that role that spans multiple continents. Uh, how do you see the health of the global telecom industry right now as we head out of 2021 into 2022? I would think generally it, it looks quite quite healthy. I mean, you know, the, the reality of, of COVID, you know, has you know, shone the spotlight on the importance of connectivity and telecommunications in general. And I think you know the need for people to work uh, productively from home, uh, study from home, has really uh, forced a lot of uh, network infrastructure investment. To be quite honest, and, and I think you know it's driven usage of the networks up. We've seen this both in the, you know, the 4G, 5G network evolutions have been uh, you know happening over the last few years. We've seen this in significant fibre investments as people put more fibre and also fixed network investments into the ground. We've also seen the evolution of, you know, openness and cloud coming along and as we change the business models for the telcos as they change their business models to, to find new revenue streams, how they monetize technology, and, of course, you know, really just how, how do we improve that customer experience uh, for, for not just my customers but for my customers' customers. 
And how do you see things in the Australia-New Zealand market from your perspective across the Pacific? Um, do, do you see any differences here or, or are we pretty much following global trends? I would say by and large, uh, you're following what I would say are the advanced sort of global trends, Graham. I mean, if I look at Australia, it's quite, quite interesting coming back and, and, and spending some time now with, with both my, my fantastic local team here, but also with customers is that you know, the Australian market is still really, I would say, considered one of the more advanced markets. You know, we see the same investments here, obviously, you know, uh, significant investments in 5G and fiber, interesting models around wholesale here with MVN. Um, it has some unique challenges, of course. It's a very big country, as we all know, and, and so there's some unique challenges on how you address connectivity uh, in rural parts of Australia. We, we see that in some other countries. You know, my Canadian friends would, would share that, that dilemma to some extent. But, you know, I also see uh, an industry that understands the need for that. I was reading your comms day today, and, you know, a great example of that is, you know, New South Wales now with, with opportunity to invest and share infrastructure in some of these areas to, to make this an economic approach for people to be connected, right? Because if without that, it's not necessarily economic for the, for the uh, operators themselves to, to individually invest in building those networks. But overall, I'd say it's uh, definitely seen as, you know, as one of the more advanced global markets. Yeah. Now, obviously, um, COVID-19 is still with us. <laughs> COVID-21, I guess they'll be calling it soon. Or, um, uh, or COVID-22, as the case may be. Um, how has it impacted Nokia, and specifically someone like yourself, who's in a global role? And obviously, you do like your face-to-face -face with, with the various parts of, of Nokia and also the end customers. How has it impacted your workflows? Well, let me start with myself. So, so firstly, uh, my, my children recognize me now, which is great, because uh, normally I, I'm traveling pretty much every week. And, and the dog doesn't bark at me when I come home as much now. So, so there's been some advantages of, of being home. But I think what's been really interesting is, is the rapid adoption of remote working, video conferencing, uh, working in a digital environment. You know, at first it was a little clunky. Everyone wasn't quite sure how this was going to go, but it's really become, you know, the, the usual overused term of the new norm. So we've really been able to find ways to engage with our customers in a virtual environment. And I think a great example of that would be, you know, traditionally we did a lot of industry shows, right? We all go to a location and, and look at the demonstrations and look at the technology evolutions. We're doing that virtually now. So, so whereas in the past, you know, we may have been able to maybe host three, 400 customers to these types of events around the world throughout the year, we can now do thousands of those, right? So our customers are also, you know, taking advantage of this. We're taking advantage of being able to get our message out there, there far more quickly and more efficiently than we have in the past. Because you can't completely um, move away from the face-to-face. -face. I mean, this is an industry which is built on, on you know, people selling to people and building technology and network evolution strategies. So it's certainly been interesting the last two or three months as the world has started to open up and I've been able to travel. Um, it's been great to be able to sit in a room and, and just sit with a whiteboard and discuss technology trends, business trends. Um, uh, you know, that it's just a, it's just a nice to be able to do that face-to-face -face from time to time. But I, I, I do think we will see a, a sustained shift towards a more virtual engagement as we go forward. Okay, now that's a nice segue into um, my next question, and that's actually about the role that you play in Nokia. And, and your, your position title says it all. You're all about the customer experience. Now, obviously, when you're an equipment vendor, you're, you're sort of two degrees of separation away from an end user of, of technology more often than not. So tell, tell me about how this focus on customer experience applies in practice from, from your perspective at Nokia. 
Yeah, it's right. I mean, you know, from the consumer where it was certainly one step removed. But if I look at, you know, what does customer experience mean for me? I mean, really, it is about putting the customer at the heart of everything we do at Nokia. So, you know, we've transformed at Nokia at the beginning of 2021. We moved to a new mode of operation where we have, you know, four business groups who have clear PL accountability for those business so that we can ensure that we're investing to, to create technology leaderships in each of the areas that we choose to play. But from a customer perspective, of course, they want to buy, you know, technology solutions from a company like Nokia. So as the customer experience head, our role really is to make sure that we look at, look to our customers as one Nokia, that we I really have two key roles. The most important one is that in our leadership team, I represent the voice of the customer. So it's my job to challenge the company, my company, to make sure that we're delivering the technology evolutions and strategies and solutions that our customers are looking for out there. But equally, our role in customer experience is to bring the innovations from our business groups, the innovation from our Bell Labs research, the innovations from our IPR technology portfolio, bring that to our customers to show them where the technology trends are going to go, where the market trends are going, how do we help them monetize some of these trends going forward. So it really, we sit in the middle of a lot of those engagements between understanding the customer need, but also influencing the customer need by bringing you know, that, that great technology leadership we have at Nokia to our customers. Okay, well, on that note, uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Ricky. It was nice to catch up once again. We, we do catch up sort of sporadically over the years. And I look forward to um, hearing from you as to what you do next and in the future. Great. Thanks, Graham. And uh, I look forward to hopefully spending a lot more time uh, down under going forward. And that's it for Commerce Day Live this year. We'll see you next year from late January. Have a good break. <laughs>